0: Hello and welcome. My name is Leva Bonnevi and this is episode 34 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. In this episode, I revisit Sue Dyson, one of the initiators Horse and Hound referred to as a top equestrian, when we launched our petition campaign, New Era for Equestrian Sports, hashtag Let Horses Speak, in December 2023. Sue Dyson is a specialist in veterinary medicine and rehabilitation. A surgeon specialist in equine orthopedics and a rider. And I've come to know her as a professional who has dedicated her life to enhance the welfare of horses. And when I invited her to discuss the current state of affairs post Operation X and talk about where we're at and what has happened since the last time I interviewed her in November 2022, she thankfully accepted. Okay, Sue. So. so it's time to have a talk about the state of the affairs, I think. Because the last time we talked, uh, we had a um, an international petition going.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: Where the goal is to try to um, have some changes in the question sports. And we, we started to focus on dressage.
1: Yeah, so I, my feeling is that um, the social license to ride is being challenged in many different spheres. Mm. And I think that the way that we as equestrians can help to preserve our sports is by admitting that there are some problems mm. and recognising what some of them are and being seen to do something proactively about it rather than burying our heads in the sand or having repeated talking shops where lots of people agree, but then nothing happens. Yeah, And it seems to me that lots of people are discussing things and there are various letters that have been distributed by various different people to various different bodies, but not enough happens. We've seen that spurs have become optional for the use in Grand Prix dressage, but there's been uh, a deferred case about the control of the tightness of nosebands. Why was there a decision made about spurs now? Why do we have to wait for a year for, for anything to change about nose bands. That doesn't make any sense. That the FBI refused to do anything about double bridles, saying there's no scientific evidence to suggest that the use of double bits in a horse's mouth is a problem, despite there being some evidence, yet they chose to make spurs optional, for which we have no scientific evidence. We know that occasionally horses have spur marks on their sides, but that doesn't equate with scientific evidence, which they're saying has to come for a change with respect to bits. So there seems to be double standards, and to me, not enough being done. And whilst dressage is in the limelight, if you go and watch as an international show the warm up area for show jumping, you see equally as uh, unpleasant sights, I think, which are not controlled. And so I I feel that there is a problem. Uh, and whilst I don't really want to kind of broadcast to the world, look at the show jumping arena, uh, at the same time we have to acknowledge that there is a problem there. Uh, everybody is against, I think almost everybody is against, the practice of roll cur in the dressage warm-up area. But in the show jumping warm-up area, you see it, plus the addition of draw, draw reins to make sure the horses fixed in that position. And then the riders warm up over the jumps with draw reins, which seems uh, unnecessary mm-hmm. to me. So I think there are so many areas that we could identify where we could be seen to be doing something better. And we need to be seen to be doing something better. And there's been some prime examples like the Hellstrand case where Denmark has really been the kind of um, the fall guy when we know these things are going on in other countries as well.
0: But I think that is one of the the good thing about Operation X, the secrets of the horse building in Helgstrand, is that a lot of people do recognise that. But it's it's just not one rotten apple here. It's yes. it's uh, it's more. We talk a lot about it in Norway as being um, a system. Yeah. that something is rotten with the system.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And how to best address it? You know, when we have, uh, yeah, when we are where we are at the moment.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I think uh, if if you just stick with with dressage, I think that we are in a situation when the judges are rewarding performances that, by the rules or by the guidelines to the judges, are incorrect. And therefore, this is encouraging riders to ride in this way. So, for example, with the heads behind the vertical, um, because that's not penalized sufficiently to make a difference to the outcome. So if a horse can win with its head behind the vertical throughout the test and also opening its mouth repeatedly with separation of the teeth and constantly swishing its tail... What incentive is there for riders and trainers to alter the way in which they're producing horses? There doesn't seem to be an incentive. Um, In fact, on the contrary, that is being rewarded. So if that's rewarded, that's what people are going to continue to do. And that backs up to the whole breeding industry in terms of the type of horse that we are producing in order to be successful in upper level competition.
0: And also, on what level and what age in the horse were you allowed to compete at Grand Prix level? Because now the horse can be eight. Yes. yes. And what is, you know, what do we gain from having an eight year old horse in the arena competing at that level?
1: Well, I I don't think personally you do, except that it's kind of uh, feeding the industry from a financial point of view, um, which always comes into play. But for example, I was as a clinic given by Ingrid Klinker yesterday and I think that she trains in a rather different way and she encourages horses to stretch she encourages horses to live a more normal life and um, and she says i wouldn't expect to be doing grand prix movements until nine um and i don't expect the horse to be going out and successfully um winning at that level until it's more established than that and it takes that time in order to develop the horse's musculoskeletal system to be strong enough to withstand the movements required at grand prix and that you have to develop the horse's musculoskeletal system in an appropriate way so for her that means lots of stretching and she does it she this is her mantra the horse must be stretched it must learn to relax you you have to eliminate tension um
0: And if you talk about tension, uh, you want some of that kind of energy and power in the horse, but when it crosses the line to be intense, I think it's difficult sometimes for people to see the difference
1: between, you know, having
0: the impulsion and and being really tense in the body. And uh, when you look at some of the scores that we see on international dressage today, uh, they seem to kind of not follow their rules that are actually there, but having a different interpretation. as And like you say, with basic faults, that tend to look the other way and say, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it's okay. And you still get a high score. It's something that's really strange, isn't it?
1: Yes, I, I think it's because everybody, or oh, many people have fallen in love with the big moving extravagant horses that look really exciting. And dressage should be exciting, but it should also be harmonious. And I think that's what is so often missing is the harmony and and appreciating how the horse should move correctly. And it has to be able to move properly through its back. It has to be able to flex properly at the lumbosacral joint to properly engage the hind limbs. And we see these horses in a rather fixed position with their lumbosacral region in slight extension, which is incorrect. Uh, But I think that... If you just look at the superficial picture, the horse is flamboyant in front. It does step under from behind, but it's doing so in this rather animated, almost too up and down movement and not forward enough. Um, And then when you see them, Piaf and Passage, um, it is often, and which is rewarded very highly from the way that things are marked because of the number of movements there are involving that, um, you see it performed incorrectly very often. And you are, I then have to ask, well, is that because of inadequate training or is it because the horses can't do it correctly? Or are our definitions inappropriate? Because to correct it, the, the, for the hind limbs, each hind foot is supposed to come up to mid-cannon level uh, and it's supposed to be symmetrical all the time. And you see many horses which just cannot do that, which is partly because they haven't got the correct balance to do that. And I suspect they're not strong enough to do that because the basic training has not prepared them enough to do that. And then a small number will be a bit uncomfortable behind, again, because they're carrying problems that are in part a reflection of uh, probably doing a little bit too much too soon before they're really ready to do so.
0: I think also uh, that is enabled by having a very tight noseband, for example, that you kind of, you know, you kind of, um, you're able to force the horse in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you couldn't really strap, you know, if if noseband is really tight and you can kick on the spur, you know, use the spurs and just kind of <clears throat> squeeze the horse together. It, it makes it that... so easy to make shortcuts as well, in a way. Do you well, know what I mean I, I think. I think. It because you the want argument,
1: the horse to be together but yes, but not squeezed with force you know what i mean about nose bands i think mm-hmm. is is interesting and in that i certainly think that it's wrong that we're having overtight nose bands but paradoxically the scientific evidence is not strong about the what nose bands do to horses intuitively we think they're wrong um and the FBI have agreed that next year we will have better rules to control the tightness of nose bands, I think it will be very interesting to see what difference this makes. Because in actual fact, as I said, the scientific evidence about nose bands is very, very small. Um, And uh, that's not to say that tight nose bands are appropriate. I don't believe that's the case. But I think the scientific evidence is lacking in terms of how it, the, a looser noseband will influence horses' performances.
0: But it does have something to say when it comes to the training of the horse. So then it depends on what do you really measure on those, you know, when you do those surveys.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, if if you were to, um, to design, it would be quite easy to design a scientific study to show what influence the noseband had on the way in which the horse went that will be really easy which is completely different to the double bridle story when you can't blind a rider as to whether or not they've got two reins in each hand or one rein in each hand and they're going to have a bias in terms of what their preference is for what they want the outcome to be but with a noseband it's really easy to do and it would be very interesting to do such a study um uh And and I'm not not in any way trying to defend tight nose bands, don't get me wrong. Uh, But what I'm trying to put across is that uh, if the FEI wants to hide behind the need for scientific evidence, then they need to look at what evidence is actually out there. Um, And
0: they haven't, yeah, they have been doing so for a while. They have this tech group that was going to look into this. I think they started up in June in 2022. And then they handed in a report in November, and it's going to be dis- discussed now in April. Isn't yes. that
1: correct? Yeah. Yes. 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 Have you but read that report, Sue? No, I, I haven't what? read that report. No. no. Um, but but they're, they're looking at what is there now, um, and and that can't tell us really about what change could bring about. No. Um And that that's what we need to know.
0: Because at the moment, what we can see then is that the social license to operate for a question sport is really not as solid as it it used to be.
1: No, I don't think it is for for many different reasons because I think public awareness has been raised. Uh, So for example, in the United States, um, there have been a number of racehorse fatalities that are very high profile. And so if you ask a member of the general public about horse racing, they will give you an opinion about horse racing, which is which is negative. And I've heard this. I've, I've talked to a number of Americans who are not horse people, and they are really anti-horse racing. They don't know much about dressage. Uh, and it's actually within the horse industry itself that there's more internal criticism, I think, about what's going on in equestrian sports, um, because you there is a fairly large and vociferous group of people who are not directly involved in equestrian sports, but are riders who say, we shouldn't put a bit in a horse's mouth, we shouldn't put nosebands on at all, we shouldn't put shoes on the horse, we shouldn't jump the horse. And they are part of the equestrian community who are questioning what we're doing. And we need to convince those people that what we're doing is acceptable, as well as convincing the general public. That what we're doing is acceptable
0: we did see a shift there i think in scandinavia after that operation x came out the documentary about telstrom mm-hmm. um that people outside the horse community said what is this and and really it really changed the debate i think in norway a lot and also in scandinavia um they have now sent the, the federations in Scandinavia and the North have, have sent a, a joint letter to the FEI saying that there is need for change. Um, so we see on many levels in Scandinavia now, both when it comes to the debate and the active steps that the federations are taking towards a better horse welfare. It's it's really been a shift, I think, after that documentary was aired for the first time yeah. in yeah last year.
1: Yeah. I've been interested because I go to Denmark every six weeks or so to give some uh, clinical advice at at the veterinary school. And I've given a series of talks, the same talk every time, and it gets sold out every time, which shows the interest in this whole debate about um, the presence or absence of discomfort in horses and and the social license to compete. So it's been very interesting to me. How popular these talks have been and that this started before Health Strand. so in different countries there's different levels of awareness I think.
0: I think the one group that has been interested in horse welfare like the group that I'm representing we've been interested in horse welfare for 20 years or more so we would go to that lecture for that reason but I think the debate that we have now has really opened up the discussion to You know, it's much broader at the moment, I think. And I think that is really healthy when we want something to change.
1: Yes, but it's a question of influencing the people who are in a decision-making capacity. So what to do,
0: Sue, what to do? (laughs) (laughs) We have the petition going, and there are a lot of other petitions going, and I can see in our growing number on social media with groups that kind of say, we want to change and we want to change now. And it has to do with the horse. We all agree it should be a happy athlete, it should be fit to compete and it should be harmonious. And if we have these three elements in place then people would be less disturbed. Absolutely, absolutely. So how to get there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean the the British Dressage group, British Dressage, has put out a, a horse welfare statement which sounds brilliant. But British dressage did not vote for change at the last FEI meeting. uh, And uh, they have not written to the FEI, as far as I'm aware, aware, to try and encourage change. Um, So it is not unanimous. And when I spoke to Ingrid Klimke yesterday, the German Federation want things to stay the same. They don't want to change the status quo uh, in terms of dressage. And so you've got different groups having different attitudes. And so we have to persuade more federations to be in favour of change. And we have to encourage the people at the top of the FEI that there is a need to change. Because unless we see change coming down from the top, I don't see how we can institute change. But what I always use as an example is that Things can change in that before London 212, people wore top hats for dressage. And then Charlotte Dujardin wore a crash hat, completely unconventional. And since then, everybody wears a crash hat. So that was an enormous step, which showed to me that change can happen. Yeah, and yeah if you for sure. Have some top riders who are talking about change that that can itself be influential in trickling down. But whilst um, the wrong ways of producing horses are still rewarded at competition, it can't really influence the industry because the industry is such a huge industry. If you think about the number of horses that are bred in continental Europe, in Germany, in Holland in particular, these are enormous, really influential enterprises with involving a huge amount of money. So for them to be able to produce horses for young horse sales and for young horse competition classes as a showcase for sales of those horses, that is having an enormous influence. And we are encouraging the production of the type of horse that is only suitable for top level professional riders to ride and they are hot individuals a lot of them and need to be ridden with lots of tact and diplomacy and they need time in my view to be produced in a correct way as possible without taking shortcuts and the shortcuts are often a dominant rider using dominant methods which results in tension and which results in incorrect movement, which, to me, isn't right.
0: So we talked about. I talked about some with some of my friends over here about the need of um, the industry being more transparent. Uh, in Gothenburg uh, horse show, they had uh, cameras in the warm-up arena with a live stream. Mm-hmm. So that means that at any given point, uh, the cameras would be there during the warm-up. And that was, I haven't seen the seen it myself because it's too busy with work for a while. But uh, I have the reports from my uh, trusted friends and they said that the good thing about it was that the camera was sort of there all the time, but it would kind of stick to one horse and then maybe change to another horse. And we were kind of looking at... Uh, a live stream where you don't have have what we uh, used to call Gothenburg Corners, you know, where there are a part of the arena where, you know, you can do whatever you want because nobody can see it. And where the camera is also not switching when it's starting to get sort of interesting to see, you know, is the pressure okay or is it not? So having a a camera on the warm up would not uh, change anything for the riders because there wouldn't be like a hundred people standing there watching them and, you know, creating tension in the room it would just be like a silent observer Mm. and then it would be much more difficult to take that shortcut where you need to really discipline the horse or be really you know using roller or whatever you have of uh, you know yeah shortcuts it would be much more difficult to use those shortcuts uh, if it was a live stream on because then you would not be able to kind of Take the harshness from home and put it into the warm-up arena before you go out to start. It would be one element less, maybe. Maybe.
1: Because maybe because because my my
0: I call me call me um naive, but I still think that if you train a horse properly and, and give the horse the time it needs, then you know. Warm up or whatever should not be a problem to show people because it will be a balanced, happy uh, athlete that is fit to compete.
1: Yes. Now, now you—it could be argued, and this is—I'm going to put an alternative argument that yes, I've people. Yes, do please. First of all, that there is an FEI steward present all the time, whose job is there to control the situation and mm. to um, uh, reprimand somebody if if they're seen to be acting inappropriately. Now. I know from people who are regularly observing that this doesn't always happen.
0: That's the problem. Mm -hmm.
1: And also the riders will say that, and I'm not sure this is a good argument, but the riders do say, well, this is a very high tension environment and you cannot expect a horse to come into this high tension environment and be a relaxed athlete. But I would say, well, we are training these horses They're not four-year-olds. We're not talking about the four-year-old horses. We're talking about the Grand Prix horses. And the Grand Prix horses have been to high-pressure competitions before. And therefore, they should be used to these changes in environment. And yes, some, some areas are more high tension than others. Um, so I was at Jumping Amsterdam a few weeks ago, and the warm-up area is in, surrounded by the trade exhibition, and uh, there's a very narrow entrance into the main arena, and when you're in the main arena, the, the audience is right down, right at the, at the level of the arena. Um, but if a horse has been appropriately trained, I think that the riders in the ideal world should be able to produce those their horses to cope with this, unless they are producing horses which temperamentally are unsuited to be ridden in that environment. And then there's this balance between this lovely animated um, performance versus a calmer performance. And when is uh, an animation is rewarded, but when is animation correct versus reflecting excessive tension mm. and that's a, a difficult judgement um it is
0: so where do we go from here in order to get that change that i think is sorely needed to uh, if if there if is a goal an overall goal to you know keep equestrian sports and the social license to operate is growing thinner. What would be the the next good step to take, you think, for the FEI and for the rest of us?
1: I would like the FEI to be more open to change and perhaps have part of a day or a whole day in which we showed some video footage of horses and stewards commented on what they saw some experts commented on what they saw. Some judges commented on what they saw. And then we had a well-chaired uh, debate about what is actually happening and how, what problems we're seeing there and how could we address those problems. Because I think it's no good just having a talking shop when we talk in principles. We need to be looking at specific examples and we're not trying to pull out any particular individual riders, I don't think. Um, For example, uh, Lottie Fry has had a lot of bad press recently because she won at Jumping Amsterdam and everybody was critical about the way the horse went. Uh, But she was riding to get the marks that were rewarded. So I don't think it's fair to criticise Lottie Fry per se. And I think that's what we have to take out the personalities from this and say, what are the principles of training? Uh, and are those principles being adhered to? And are re- rewarding horses produced correctly? And let's see some examples of what's good and what's not so good and compare them and discuss them openly and transparently. Thank
0: you ever so much for this talk, Sue. It's going to be interesting to see how this uh, unfolds, I think.
1: Yes, I, I have no idea what's going to happen, uh, no. but I think we need- change is needed. Yes,
0: that yes. is really clear, yes. I think. And um, and uh, I just I think two days ago I read, uh, I think it was on Science Direct where it, where it says one of the conclusions was urgent need to address animal welfare and enhance solution in dressage sports, and then they had looked at the ridden elite dressage horses between warm up and competition, uh, and I. For some reason, I a picture that comes to mind is um, it was I think it was a British documentary called uh, Pedigree Dogs Exposed. It it's been a few years since it aired the first time, and what I remember very clearly from that documentary is that moment where we had that small dog with a lot of fluffy fur. And, and all the people standing around, he was best in show or or best in his breed or whatever. And they had to put in on this, you know, when you go camping and you want to keep the food cold, yes. this element that was, you know, icy element. And he had yeah. to sit on that because if it didn't, he got overheated. And what I remember was, you know, the, the, the people standing going, wow, you know, he's just oh brilliant, perfect, beautiful. I'm thinking, Sometimes I think that's the problem in the horse industry, that when you are really sucked into it and you've seen it a lot, then that starts to become normal.
1: Absolutely, I mean
0: we've normalized
1: so, yeah. so much within the and and with miles. you know
0: within with the with conflict behavior with the horses. I remember really good with Hel- Helstone uh, rode Blue Horse Matinee in the World Equestrian Games in two thousand and six. Her tail was going like this. And I counted the, t- the amount of time where the tail was moving like this, and it's 300 times during that yeah. you know, yeah. program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, and that's one of the reasons why I think Operation X is interesting because I, th- I think that all the horses in the International Dressage Arena, they're all telling us a story. And sometimes it can be the story of the day. So when Lottie Fry rode Everdale, um, maybe they had a bad day because I've seen them doing very well also. But it is really important, I think, that the judges judge what they see in the moment and not what they saw two years ago with the same horse or the same rider.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I watched at a different level. I watched 1,100 dressage tests at eventing level, uh, low-level British eventing. And I can remember one day when the judge got out of the car and she said to me, Sue, wasn't that a wonderful test? The head was in front of the vertical all the time. And I thought to myself, that's not what I've just seen. And I went home and I downloaded my photographs and, no, the horse's head was behind the vertical all the time. So, yes, it had been the best test in that section. I have no doubt about that. But what the judge saw was not what was in front of her. She had seen a smooth, harmonious test, but she commented specifically that the head was not behind the vertical and it was all the time. We we, we, we shouldn't just be beating up Jeff Bessire's judges. They've got a lot lot to look at, I think.
0: Yes, Um, for sure.
1: So we need to help them. And maybe we need to have a different judge at Grand Prix level, a judge that is specifically looking at harmony and using specific criteria to judge harmony. So the absence of tail swishing, the absence of mouth opening, for example.
0: I think that would be a very a huge step in the right direction, you know, because I also think that... I, I I see a lot of people think that the judges are the problem, but I think it is really a systematic... Like, the system is the problem. It has to do with, with um, how we arrange it and how we move the judges around. And I think also, because I think extravagant movements, that's good television. I mean, I work as a film producer. It is good television. If you don't know much about horses, it's good television. So if I were a sponsor, I would have more of the things that got me more eyeballs, people watching, you know? So so the money is uh, deciding what we like to look at and what we like to look at, decide which judges are gonna go and judge the different competitions. Because if you judge what sells, then you are better off going to the next one than if you say, this is not a classical principles, I don't agree with this. So to me, I think judges are part of the solution. I see so many traces online where judges now are really discussing how can we do our part to improve it. Mm-hmm. So so there are so many good peoples and so many good energies and people really trying to change the system from the outside and the inside. So like you say, it's, it is all over the place. You just have to agree on where to start now yeah. and take yeah. some really solid step towards a solid solution that will make horses fit to compete and happy athletes. Because yeah. if we can't make them fit to compete and happy athletes, we should not compete with them.
1: Yes, yeah, but I, I, I think we can do. I I, I really do. Me too, me too. Yeah, yeah, because me too. The work we did looking at, for example, Grand Prix horses competing at World Cup qualifiers and finals, when we applied the ridden horse pain ethogram, the median score, that's the most frequent score, was only two out of twenty four, which shows that those horses were the vast majority were comfortable and competing happily and um in harmony.
0: And I think that's it that to me that's also a really important issue because once you raise your voice and, and question something, people go, Oh, you're against you know, a question of sports and you want to ban everything. I was like, No, that's not my issue. But I want the horse to be fit to compete and i fit to compete and I want the horse to be unhappy athlete. And we all claim to want the same thing, so it shouldn't be that hard. I spent a day with Ped P- Fredriksson, the Swedish um yeah. show jumper. Um I had an interview with him in Sweden, I think it was two years ago. Um, and instead of just meeting him, off the grid somewhere and having the interview, I said I want to spend a day. So I spent the day with the horses in the stable with his grooms and watched every step of the way. I spent time with him during the warm-up and saw how does he do it and I spent time with him in the arena where I saw what the audience see the horse and the rider. And mm-hmm. I have to say from what I saw there, there is no welfare issues and no questions about anything the horse is happy he knows his job he's really fit to do the job and he knows that he can trust peder he knows i'm going to be taken care of he can can trust the grooms he will be taken care of and if you compete on that level that way go ahead you know it's it's why not it's i think it's really it was wonderful to see it was a harmonious rider and horse and you can see the eyes of the horse i you know, a snapshot of it, they're warm, they're open, they are relaxed. So no question about it. You know, a Christian sport at top level can be perfect, but it can also absolutely. be horrible.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and, I think the, the irony is that actually at the top level, there is less abuse of the horse than there is at the grassroots level. If do, you you think
0: that's the the, grassroots, do you think absolutely. that is the case? Absolutely. That's and, interesting. And, and
1: that's because That's because... At the lower levels, there's a far, far higher proportion of horses that are being used despite the fact that they are uncomfortable. Yeah. And that the abuse comes from using uncomfortable horses rather than the way necessarily they're being trained. Whereas at the upper levels, we're seeing a much sounder group of horses, but they are in some instances being trained inappropriately which is resulting in things that we would rather not see.
0: And also sometimes written in a way that I think it's, it's really bad that that's gonna be like the role model for younger riders.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we also have to ask, what is the wastage rate of horses that are produced from a young age in terms of we're breeding thousands of horses How many fall by the wayside because of the way they're being trained? What proportion actually ever make it through to upper levels? Now, you're going to have some horses who inherently don't have the natural athleticism or don't have the temperament to be trained appropriately. But I do think we're probably losing a percentage of potentially good horses because of the way they're being produced, produced too quickly, and overproduced for what they're ready to do.
0: So it's uh, still a job to do (laughs) (laughs) Sue. But I'm thinking, Sue, this to me, this is part one, you know, kind of warming up, having this talk with you. Um, And really thank you. uh, Thank you ever so much for the ethogram that you made. I find it really helpful because uh, because it is so difficult sometimes to know what to look for and and when i look at your ethogram i think it's kind of it's kind of uh, helping people to to develop and train their own eye like the person you talked about who said you know it was in front of the vertical but indeed it wasn't that you kind of you know have uh, yeah get some help to see better i think it's yeah. Yeah. see it more clearly and so we don't applaud around the dog who's sitting on the you know the cooler element to yeah. survive Yeah, Because sometimes I feel that's what we're doing and that's got to change.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we are in an industry that is very traditional. And as we think we said earlier, so much has been normalized, which is not truly normal. And therefore, we have to open people's eyes to how things should look. And I think once people's eyes have been opened, then they start to think a bit differently. I I think that is the key.
0: That you do you really see it, and you really yeah. understand it? Yeah. Sue, ever oh, thank you ever so much for this talk.
1: You're very, very welcome.
0: And thank you ever so much for all the important work you're doing for horses. Um, I'm always enjoying our talks, so that's uh, wonderful to see you again. and you too. You have just heard episode thirty four from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. This is part one. So consider it to be a gentle warm-up for a deeper dive into the current state of affairs in what has been described as the ultimate expression of horse training and elegance, dressage. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom, my visual designer, Uwe Hals, my sound designer, Stig Holte, my guest Sue Dyson, my researchers, Alexandra Myren and Hege Trulsen, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.